Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Nick. It's Christmas Eve here in Los Angeles. What time is it on the East Coast? (laughs) It's three hours later. How's the Uh, weather? I hear that there's a bomb cyclone going through. That's interesting. Here, it seems to be just snow. (laughs) It's just a snowstorm, that's all. And it's winding down, I think. Right. You know, that makes me think that uh, one of the interviews we had this week is with a fellow that you interviewed about an e-bike snowplow. Yeah. I love that idea. It's made the rounds of social media. Philip Marciniak in British Columbia, he made a snowplow out of an e-bike. And then you have an interview with Lindsay. Yeah, Lindsay Sturman, one of our co-hosts. She's a co-founder of LCI, which is Livable Communities Initiative. And it's a program that she's developing with real experts in the field of housing and transportation about building 15-minute neighborhoods. You know, in cycling, we kind of call that Aaronsville, you know, that two or three-mile circle around where you live, where you can run all of your errands. And so she's developed this program as a way to increase housing around mobility hubs. And we have one with All Bodies on Bikes, an inclusive ride that has chapters all over the country. But the first interview is going to be with Hugo Soto Martinez. He's the new city council member for CD13. And everybody's very excited about a new motion for complete streets that he put out. Yeah, there's a lot of new energy on the LA City Council. We're really hoping the biking community can count on council members like him. Yeah. First, and I know you like this because you you have a lot of Christmas spirit. We have Lynn Ingram, who's a cyclist who went on the mixed race ride and heard about Christmas wishes for biking. That's great. I look forward to that. Well, here it is. My wish would be better roads for biking, especially from Santa Monica to the beginning of Topanga Canyon. So what my wish would be for Christmas would be to get a new Canyon gravel bike. (laughs) Uh, I recently went out to Mammoth Lakes. I have, I guess, sort of a kind of like a gravel bike. It's not a true gravel bike, so there's a lot of trails out there, and there's a lot of a lot of nice riding over there. I would like to just you know get that bike and just ride all the trails that I <laughs> that I saw. My name is Michelle Chong, and my Christmas wish would be that drivers would see cyclists more and be considerate and share the road with us. This is Local Express. My Christmas wish is everybody gets out on their bike and goes and rides and rides and rides and rides and rides some more, and then when you go ride. Go back and go ride your bike. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) My name's Ray, and my cycling wish for Christmas would be to ride a lot more. (laughs) My wish is for anybody to be safe, ride bikes. It's true. I wish everybody has a good year and happy cycling. (laughs) Thank you. All cars are bad, (laughs) ACAB. My Christmas wish is more bike lanes. There you go. There you go. My wish is that cars would stop honking at me when I'm in the lane and telling me to get off the road because I also belong in the road. Thank you. That's true. Those were Christmas wishes from last Thursday's Mixed Race Ride in West Los Angeles, recorded by Lynn Ingram. Now, Bike Talk's new co-host, Seamus Garrity, interviews incoming Los Angeles City Council District 13 representative, Hugo Soto-Martinez. Hello. Hello, council member. Good to see you. Congratulations on your epic victory. Yeah, way. thank you so much. That's good. This is my, you're my first guest, my first interview. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> thank you for agreeing to do it. I really appreciate it. And thank you for this amazing motion. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to read 
the motion for our listeners. We have listeners in California and then also on the East Coast. Right, awesome. In Massachusetts, where it is quite a bit colder than it is in, in the 13th district. I'm one of your constituents, as you probably know. So your motion, Council District 13, is among the most densely populated and transit-dependent districts in Los Angeles, yet our streets are inhospitable to people who walk, bike, and take transit. Essential workers face unreliable or unsafe commute options, often choosing between packed buses that are stuck in traffic or streets without a single foot of protected bike lane to ride in. While making our transportation system equitable will require a concerted effort to invest in projects and programs to address the diverse needs of our communities, Council District 13 is in immediate need of basic multimodal infrastructure to make our streets safe and mobile today. I therefore move that the City Council direct the Los Angeles Department of Transportation in coordination with Metro to report with a list of bus priority projects that could be implemented in Council District 13 within 18 months. I further move that the City Council direct LADOT to report with a list of bike infrastructure projects that could be implemented in Council District 13 within 18 months. I further move that the City Council direct LADOT to report with a list of the top 10 most dangerous locations for pedestrians in Council District 13 and a plan to improve them within 18 months. I further move that the City Council direct the Bureau of Street Services, Streets LA, to report with a list of all bus stops in Council District 13 without shelter and a plan to install shelters at all of them under the Street and Transit Amenities Program, STAP. December 13th. I know that this motion created a ton of positivity and excitement. And I count myself among those people who are excited. I'm a bike advocate nowadays. I've become become that. Why do you think that this motion created so much excitement? And what why are you excited about this motion? A few reasons. I think folks are entering the biking and pedestrian space. Certainly there was an uptick during the pandemic. I think folks found sort of activity they could do. And biking was one that I've heard a lot of folks say in the last few years, people have started to bike. It's also an environmental issue. We got to get people options to get away from their cars and into biking or walking or doing other sort of public transit. I think that's another reason. But also the previous council member was very actively opposed to a lot of these projects, even though the district itself is, I would say it's probably the most progressive district in the city of Los Angeles. We went, it was a complete 180. I'm a younger, millennial cyclist organizer who, you know, who really cares deeply about them. So it was like a massive shift. I think that's why people were very happy for all those reasons. We are in a moment, I believe, where people are starting to understand more broadly the importance of, of multimodal transportation infrastructure. In the bike community, we are always advocating for safer bike lanes, but I think that um, we are also starting to really emphasize the importance of other forms of transpa- transportation, buses, walking. Can you speak to some specific examples of what projects you think you will be prioritizing and your office will be advocating for? So we have a good advantage in, in, in District 13 is that the district already has some pretty good infrastructure to build off of. We have an underground metro system that traverses the district, I think has five or six different stops. 
and a lot of east-west major corridors. Those have their many issues, right? If you're a metro rider or a bus rider, but we're in a unique position to build out infrastructure that connects all those services that we have. And so we're really looking into a connected bike infrastructure and also making people who walk right to and from the stops as a priority as well, fixing a lot of the broken sidewalks, things like that. And moreover, not only was there a shift in our district, but our neighboring districts also had a shift to our to our west. We have now a much more friendly person to, to bike infrastructure and even to our east. And now we have the ability to connect all those districts uh, and maybe even getting as close as being able to bike from Highland Park all the way to Santa Monica could be a possibility. I love that. I do that a lot, but it's not safe. I'm dodging cars and stuff. You bring up the, the new members, Unisys and Nithya. Not that Nithya is particularly new now. She's one of the senior members of the council. But I think that hopes are specifically sky high because of that flank of electeds of council members who really have emphasized the importance of these things. And I think we've seen results already. You mentioned this, but one of the inspiring aspects of your campaign was your experience as an organizer. And so do you anticipate utilizing those skills to build energy for some of these projects that may be somewhat of a heavy lift? I know that LA has seen staunch opposition at times to things like road diets or protected bike lanes, even when the city shut down part of the entrance to Griffith Park to cars. It was met with great fanfare from a lot of people, but there were loud, some loud voices opposed. Um, they wanted that cut through. Do you think that your experience as an organizer will enable you to address some of those heavy lifts and really calm folks in certain communities that are upset about a road diet or a protected bike lane, something like that, a dash in Silver Lake? So, you know, things like that, I think, are what people are expecting. Historically, they have not always been the easiest things to implement. My background is a union organizer, done a lot of work in the community. Essentially, the organizer's role is to bring people together, even if they have different opinions, and to organize and educate, synthesize different opinions, assuage people's fears, things of that nature. And some of the biggest oppositions to a lot of these folks have been, you know, the fear that small businesses will be hurt, either because of reduction of parking, the commute times are going to be longer because we're cutting off a lane if we do the road diet. If we take time and really understand people's fears and concerns, oftentimes you find that many of those are not true, right? A lot of studies have shown that when you make biking more accessible, actually it helps small businesses, even if we reduce parking. And when people are doing more public transportation, actually commute times can be shorter. Now that doesn't take away the work that needs to happen with the community. And as an organizer, I actually love this part of the job, going door to door, talking to folks, recognizing the concerns that they have, and really walking them through the process. Now, some people will always be opposed to it, no matter what information they give or any ways you can try to involve them in the process. But what I find is that when you take the time and the patience to go through that, most people jump on board. We all agree climate change is real. We all have complained about traffic in Los Angeles for so many years. Biking and walking is good. It's exercise. You know, get some exercise in there. You get out in the, in the outdoors. So there's a lot of amazing benefits. And I think when we do that work, I think people will be on board. And I'm actually looking forward to that process. I think people will be excited. Yeah, for sure. My day job, I work in the state assembly. There was a bill passed by Assemblymember Friedman, who I work for, 
2097, which reduces or eliminates parking requirements, right? I think that there has been an understanding that in the midst of climate change, reducing vehicle miles traveled, reducing greenhouse gases, we really have to change how we get around. And obviously the bike community is like, we have bikes, let's let's go with bikes, but it's not necessarily for everyone. It'd be interesting to think to, to, for you to talk about which communities, not just by neighborhood, but demographically, which communities do you think are most in need of these types of changes and these types of investments? What types of infrastructure improve? What do you think the implementation of that will look like? Is it is it a bike lane? Is Sunset for All? I'm obviously very much in favor of Sunset for All, but is that something that will face backlash from certain communities along the corridor? What do they need and how do we accommodate so many people? That's a great question. And that's sort of the challenge, right? Sunset for All, I, I, it's a great project. I, I'm supportive of it. You don't have to decide which communities benefit. It's going to, I think it's going to support a lot of folks. I think where we get a little bit more challenging is in the areas where we're going to have to choose between maybe putting bus only lanes as opposed to bike infrastructure. That is a different demographic. Most of the bus riders of the city are essentially the working poor. I think the median income is like $15,000 per year of bus riders. And so that's where we might face a little bit more challenges, but we always have to think about the equity piece of that, or maybe trying to do both. But that I think will be a little bit more difficult. Where I think there is less argument is on pedestrian infrastructure. This is universal. It doesn't matter who you are, if you're old or you're young. Obviously, our aged community is a little bit it's more vulnerable to that, folks with disabilities. But I know people from across the spectrum that have slipped and fell because of the broken sidewalks. So that stuff, we there's no debate. But I think when we look at larger piece, we have to look at what gets us the most for what we have, for the limited space that we have. Yeah. And I guess for the East Coasters who are listening or watching, the Sunset for All plan is something that I think is transformative, right? The idea is transformative for one of our most iconic boulevards to make it a complete street. Another project specifically in Northeast LA that that folks are, not another project, but an area in the border of Atwater Village, further into Northeast LA, bike lanes on Fletcher, Verdugo, Glendale Boulevard. These are hot button issues. Uh, since I joined the bike advocacy community and going back at least 2014 and definitely going before, it's been a long battle over there. There's people who very much oppose any changes to Fletcher, and it is very congested already. How do you go about getting bike lanes on a street like Fletcher, where it's already congested, people are going to lose their mind, there's a freeway, what do we, how do we, I don't even know if you have an answer for that. (laughs) I don't have an answer exactly, people do think they have answers, but yeah, we want to see more bike safety and pedestrian safety on, on Fletcher. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, Fletcher is a, it's a terrible street to, to drive on. Like Sunset is, it's bad. If you've ever driven there during rush hour, like it is extremely congested. So Sunset for All, right, is an example where that is actually going to help creating that corridor for protected bikes without removing any, any lanes. It's a good thing. That's where people can go. Now, if it's Fletcher doing a road diet, that could be very, very challenging. But I think we should start in the areas where it can be a win-win, right? Like Sunset, perhaps Santa Monica, Vermont, Melrose. We have so many streets where we could create that infrastructure. And now I think as a, as a long-term vision, 
if you start doing that in the areas you can get it done now without, then it'll start creating a culture where folks are not taking their cars. And so maybe Fletcher five years wouldn't be as challenging because now people are accustomed to have other streets, other options. So you have to think about it as what are the low hanging fruit? What what is the short term to the medium to the long term? And so I always say, let's get some victories now and let's worry about the more difficult stuff later. And so that's how we're going to look at it in the district. It's like, where can we get the easy wins? I like that, a tiered approach. I want to talk real briefly about the Silver Lake Reservoir Master Plan. I think that there is a part of that master plan is adding 150 parking spaces around the reservoir, which I think is a huge mistake. I think any cyclist, anyone who is in favor of active transportation and making that facility something that beckons folks in a sort of multimodal universe, I think that adding a bunch of parking I don't know. It just seems like a bad idea. What do you think about the Silver Lake Reservoir Master Plan and how to approach it in the context of this motion and sort of your goals for the 13th District? The study just came out a few weeks ago, and so I have to dig more into it. But I would say that there's a lot of great things that are in there. There's community center, uh, you know, sort of garden, garden thing. The thing that I am more concerned about is how people get to the park, the transportation to the park. I don't think, I'm not a big fan of, of making the our attractions or the communities, the community centers more dependent on driving. I think we have to look at how we can get folks there without causing those headaches. One of the ideas we've thrown out is actually doing a dash to, to the Silver Lake. And so that's, we don't have a line that goes there. And unlike Metro, that's part of the city structure. And so DOT, so there's still, but I mean, there's a, this very controversial issue. There's a very a lot of passions on both sides. But if we can find a way to make this not dependent on cars, I think that is something that I think all sides can agree. Mm-hmm. Because you reduce the traffic, you make it accessible to lower income families, and it's, it gets people out of their cars. That's the stuff we need to look at when we think about this. Absolutely. Thank you so much, council member, sure. for being here today and for your answers. I hope we get to have you back as things evolve. Absolutely. Yeah. Love to be here. And congratulations on your first your first show. <laughs> and uh, it's a good topic, good subject. And I'm sure there'd be a lot of folks that want to come here and shed their knowledge and be part of Thank this. Thank you. All right. Have a good one, Seamus. That was Los Angeles City Council member Hugo Soto Martinez and Bike Talk host Seamus Garrity. Now, Marley Blonsky and Jacob Shepard Seidel with All Bodies on Bikes. I'm with Marley Blonsky and Jacob Shepard Seidel. And Marley is the All Bodies on Bikes co-founder in Bentonville, Arkansas. And Jacob is the All Bodies on Bikes chapter leader of Western Massachusetts. Hi, Jacob and Marley. Hi, thanks for having us on. Thank you for being here. This came to my attention, All Bodies on Bikes, because Jacob is in Western Massachusetts, although you work in a bike shop in Hartford. You did the first ride of the Western Massachusetts All Bodies and Bikes chapter recently, right? Yeah, it was uh, December 4th. So so a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a lovely turnout, despite the fact that it was December 4th and, and was rather cold. Um, we had some great folks that came out to join us, some coming from as far as the Cape uh, from Hartford as well. We had wow. some folks coming out, folks from further north, uh, even outside of the state in Vermont, there's a great interest in these inclusive cycling communities, especially in this area where there's really lovely riding to be done. Is this chapter recently started? You know, I applied to become the chapter leader in April of last year, I believe, of uh, 2022. And uh, yeah, this was our our first official ride. Yeah, really excited to be doing a lot more. There's, There's a great interest for this. If I can pop in and give some background, I am an absolute 
agent of chaos. And so I get these ideas and chapters was one of them. And it was like, we're going to get chapter leaders. And then actually executing the ideas is my kryptonite. Um, and so <laughs> thankfully with a little nudge from one of our sponsors, which is REI, um, they have their big opt outside program every year and they encouraged us to do some activations. And so that was the kick in the pants I needed to start utilizing these chapter leaders um, who have been huge supporters from the very beginning and really raring to go. And I was holding them back. Um, <laughs> So now we're off and running and now they get to do whatever they want, basically. Well, not whatever they want, but kind of. So what is All Bodies on Bikes? It's a inclusive ride. Yep. Um, so we are just getting incorporated as an official nonprofit. Prior to that, we were like a movement. We were an Instagram account. We were a website, but no real formal organization, but basically a movement to make the cycling community and industry more inclusive to people of all sizes, shapes fitness levels or perceived fitness levels and just friendlier and more inclusive. And yeah. you co-founded this way and... back in 2021. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, not that long ago. Like I said, you know, we were a movement, a website, an Instagram page. We we're also a film from Sh a short film from Shimano by the same name, All Bodies on Bikes, that followed me and my co-founder, Kaylee Kornhauser, on a bike packing trip. And that kind of put the spark in us to say, hey, this could actually be something bigger than just this idea that we have. Um, Kaylee and I had been giving talks and workshops about size inclusion and why it matters and how to do it. And then the film really catalyzed it to be like, no, this is a thing that we should do. That was my so first engagement with uh, All Bodies on Bikes was that film, which was really wonderful because there are all these ideas expressed that are things that that I and I'm sure many, many other people have been thinking about and pushing for and like daydreaming about for so, so long. And that was such a wonderful thing to really see that kind of come to light in this, uh, in this film and, and see the movement grow from there. It's been really fantastic to watch. Thanks, Jacob. I guess we'll have to see the film. And is the film like the rides? Are the rides like the film? Yes, kind of. Um, <laughs> in that they're kind of goofy. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Yes. Um, the film, I don't know, it's like 12 or 13 minutes. And the first part follows Kaylee and I on a bikepacking trip, kind of talking about how we got into cycling, what it's like to be a larger bodied person on a bike. And then towards the end, uh, we actually do a social ride, um, a social inclusive ride. And you see some fun footage of that. So it, it does give you kind of a preview of what to expect. Um, but it kind of just lays the the framework that people of all bodies deserve to be on bicycles in whatever way is joyful to them. Well, do you want to talk about that? How it, people not might not have got that message up until recently or now? You know, the media portrayal of who a cyclist is doesn't reflect a lot of our lived realities, you know, whether it's a, a skinny, I shouldn't say that all bodies are good bodies, but the perception is that you have to be super fit or going super fast or wearing, you know, an entire outfit made of Lycra to be a cyclist. And we're really kind of pushing that and saying, no, anybody can be a cyclist. Anybody who rides a bike is a cyclist. It doesn't matter what you look like, how fast you go, why you're riding a bike. You know, if you want to race, mm -hmm. that's awesome. If you don't want to race, if you just want to have fun or go to the store or get exercise. Those are all perfectly valid reasons and you deserve equipment that works for you. I think one of our biggest frustrations as bigger people on bikes, because yeah, anybody can in theory ride a bicycle, 
but bikes have really low weight limits sometimes. And finding that information can be really hard. Oftentimes bike shops don't even know it. And then finding clothing. You know, I had some friends invite me to go on a ride today and it's literally zero degrees outside. And I just don't have (laughs) winter bike clothing that fits me um, to go out in something like that. I didn't know it gets that cold in Arkansas. I didn't either. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Yeah, I think another thing that you know, strikes me as as really important is both the inclusivity and the accessibility. Just having these, the right equipment is one really important part of it, but also having communities of people that are telling you that you are allowed to engage in this activity and trying to also find support for folks that are coming to cycling from a, a completely different perspective. You know, lots of people that are riding bikes, not as a hobby or as this kind of fun way to blow off steam, but as a, a form of transportation to get to their their jobs to navigate life in a city or in a town. Um, and I think that's a really important additional perspective to bring to what it means to be all bodies on bikes. That's a huge perspective. And, you know, folks with disabilities, people who use wheelchairs, um, mm-hmm. that equipment exists, but a lot of times folks don't know that it's out there or that You know, there's rental fleets. So just kind of connecting the dots. Um, I know that our name is All Bodies on Bikes and we're not serving all bodies right now, but we're just getting started. There's so much room to grow and partnerships and I'm really excited for what's to come for us. And how was your first ride, Jacob? Our first ride was wonderful. We rode out of Northampton, Massachusetts uh, because there's some really lovely, easily accessible gravel and dirt roads there. Um, And it's kind of a nexus where a lot of folks are, are living. But like I said, we we had folks driving from quite far distances to, to join us. We ended up going six miles. We rode on some really nice gravel roads. We rode on the bike path. We made a stop at a coffee shop in Northampton Familiars, and we got some coffee. We got some pastries. We you know, hung out and talked a little bit about how we see the, the chapter growing and what everybody wants out of this chapter. Part of the ride, we had money donated from REI to help facilitate the ride, um, and we spent that money as a donation to the Nipmuc Nation, which is uh, in Massachusetts and is currently working towards land back projects in Belchertown. And that was, I think, an important way to, to show our solidarity with that organization and that nation. I love autonomous leadership. And so empowering folks to take this on and to make it what they want. Um, you know, we're not prescribing how to lead the ride. Well, we are telling them best practices for how to lead the rides, but we're not saying, you know, it has to be a road ride or a gravel ride or a mountain bike ride, you know, whatever your community needs. Maybe it's a flat fixing clinic. Maybe it's a gravel ride like Jacob's community did. We want to empower local communities to do what's best for them. So I went on a ride in Kansas City that was really lovely. There was also rides in DC, Chicago, New York, and Charlotte. Uh, North Carolina, as far as I know. Yeah, and we will ultimately, as part of the Western Mass community, we'll we'll do all of these different things. So that was one of the great parts about this ride experience was having this community connection, all these people coming together, you know, sharing their perspectives, how they found this organization, how they, uh, you know, their different relationships with the bikes and what they want out of this inclusive biking community. And for some people, it was, I just want to go on more rides with other people. For some, it was, I, I want to do a gear share. I want to do a gear swap, especially as we're thinking about larger bodies and the the lack of access to affordable, decent bike gear and outdoor gear. This is a great way to be able to share some of the stuff that you have that may not you know, be very accessible. So that a lot of people had lots of different wonderful ideas about how to 
um, expand the chapter. What's a gear swap? This would be something where, you know, you set up a station and folks can come and bring, let's say, a, a jacket that they have that doesn't fit them anymore, you know, or something that they have that they're not using and they can trade it, you know, rather than giving it away or trying to sell it or just throwing it away, they can give it to somebody else who is going to find use in that item. Um, and so it's a way to kind of grow community support, you know, share resources with other people um, and make sure that everybody has what they need. Um, and we're not wasting things as well. Wow. Bike Talk is on Valley Free Radio in uh, Northampton. So people might be interested in how they could get in touch with you about your next ride. The easiest way is through our Instagram account, which is all bodies on bikes underscore Western mass. Um, and they can see what we're up to on there. Um, there are going to be some other things coming and, you know, other ways to be able to get in touch, but, but right now that'll be the best way to get in contact. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say to find out other chapters, allbodiesonbikes.com and go to the get involved tab. We've got the local chapters listed there. We also have an Instagram and a Facebook group. Um, and then you can join our mailing list and we try and email when these rides are happening to the entire mailing list. But like I said, I'm a chaos agent. So sometimes those emails happen. Sometimes they don't. (laughs) (laughs) You're kind of expanding. You're you've got a real sponsor, REI. I mean, you're can you really be that chaotic when you have a national network like that? <laughs> Turns out you can. <laughs> um, no, I we've been incredibly lucky. You know, REI has financially supported us. Um, we also got a grant from people for bikes. The support is phenomenal and that's gonna continue to grow. But in terms of organization and being an entrepreneur and trying to start a nonprofit, I wear a million hats and sometimes mm-hmm. those fall off. well it gets windy yeah that's Uh, especially when you're on a bike the main gist is we're growing we're learning how to do this together and if folks have ideas for you know partnerships or rides or things they want to do just reach out we're always open to new ideas thank you marley thank you jacob i'm sure that this will grow and evolve and there will be more yes to talk about absolutely thank you so much That was Marley Blonsky and Jacob Shepard Seidel with All Bodies on Bikes. Now Philip Marciniak of British Columbia on Plowing Snow by e-bike. Philip Marciniak, how's winter treating you? Definitely a little uh, more intense than we usually get around here. This is one of the largest dumps in recent memory, I would say. A bit more snow than usual. We we got about a foot and a half, I think, on uh, Monday night, which is sort of a lot for here usually like once or twice a year we'll get like maybe a few inches maybe like up to a foot uh it's not too common but um we got about a foot and a half on monday night and it's just basically shut down the entire city we don't have that much snow clearing equipment in like any of our local municipalities here it's kind of a mishmash of municipalities so it basically brought everything to a grinding halt monday night I see a lot on social media about bike lanes not being given the same treatment that roads are, but you're saying that even the roads are not getting cleared, huh? That was definitely the case, at least like uh, Tuesday. Some of the main roads were, I think Tuesday after the snowfall, basically all the bus lines were not running. Like, I don't think that there was a single bus line that was running in all of greater Victoria. So that basically means that even the major routes were not even passable by like a big heavy city bus. So yeah, it was pretty bad. Funny thing is actually the bike lanes in downtown Victoria did get cleared. The city of Victoria does have little mini kind of clearing like specialty equipment for clearing the bike lanes and sidewalks, which is always a big point of contention the last couple of years, right? Uh, City of Victoria did build a few separated bike lanes in the city, 
And when they get cleared before the streets get cleared, you know, motorists see that and like, you know, kind of lose their minds, right? They're like, how can these bike lanes be clear when the, there's still snow on the roads and this and that? So it's always a point of contention the last few years here. So you're just pushing them over the edge? That's just really the downtown core. It's literally like a few blocks of downtown that where, where the bike lanes are cleared. Um, as soon as you're out of like, like three kind of kilometer, few mile like city sort of radius, you're on your own, like bike lanes, sidewalks, everything is just just hammered with snow. And if it's a gutter bike lane, then it's just going to be buried by the plow. So uh, you're either just biking on the road with the cars or maybe on the sidewalk, but the sidewalks are just hammered with snow too. So yeah, I know it's a mess. We, we are definitely not prepared for snow here on our coastal Vancouver Island city, but uh, that's where the bike plow comes in. Tell us about the bike plow. The bike plow. I built this one last year. I built the first one a couple winters ago. I do service calls. I have an appliance repair business that I've been doing by cargo bike for the last like seven, eight years. I was living in Vancouver when I built the bike. I was doing service calls mostly in the city and I was driving around a GMC Safari and in the city, it was just miserable. Like trying to find parking, walking to the condo a few blocks with my tools, feeding the meter, trying to work the phone in the day. It was just a nightmare. And I thought, surely there must be a better way. Went to the Netherlands like what, 12 years ago, saw what people were doing on bicycles over there. And I thought, what am I doing in the city back in Vancouver, driving this van around? I'm lucky in my trade that I don't need a ton of equipment. I need kind of my tools and the parts I need for the day. So that's when I built this bike to use for my service business. And I've been using it since I moved to the island in 2016. And it's all fine and dandy, except for when there's snow days. And I'm trying to get to my service calls. And usually I can actually manage okay, actually quite well. But when the snow piles up and kind of gets dry and crusty and or I guess kind of wet and crusty on the bike lanes, it makes it pretty hard to navigate sometimes. Not possible. So it got me thinking like, boy, it'd be great if I could think of some kind of method to clear these bike lanes, right? I got this big, heavy e-bike and sort of got me thinking. And a couple of years ago, after a snowfall, I'd got an idea to cut up a 50 gallon rain barrel that I had lying around cut like a shovel out of it make like a simple wooden frame and attach you, it to you the made front of the, my... the blades of the shovel out of the parts of the rain barrel I basically just cut like a quarter out of the rain barrel to kind of get a curved shape out of it I figured that would work pretty well as a shovel it's like the right kind of durability but also like flexible I wanted something where if I catch an edge or something, it's not just going to like catch completely and send me over the handlebars. So I'd kind of figure that that might be a good material. Built a simple like two by four frame and screwed it together and took it out. And it worked surprisingly well. I got like a little 10 second clip of me clearing like the edge of a bike path that was already cleared by the city, but I just kind of cleared the edge of it a little further and um, just posted like it was like a 10 second clip online. And that just like blew up on Twitter. I was kind of surprised. But the issue with that plow was it was a single exit plow. So it kind of sent everything to the right side, which pushed the front of my bike to the left. So it was kind of hard to control. But anyways, I saw the potential in having a plow for this bike. So last year, I built the V-split plow, which is the one that's now making the rounds on the video. And basically, same idea, just a wooden frame, uh, two by fours. And then using that same rain barrel, I cut two more shovel blades out of it and screwed it together, 
attached yeah, it to the, the bike. Use, and use the whole rain barrel. I use the whole rain barrel. Yeah. So the one rain barrel gave me, I got three blades out of it. Probably could have maybe gotten four. Pretty simple idea. It just works surprisingly well. A lot of people have been asking me whether if I were to catch an edge, am I going to flip over the handlebars? And uh, the answer is no. The plow kind of catches and just skips up because that hmm. polyethylene plastic has enough give that it sort of yields backwards and then just sends the whole thing up and over. Perfect. Works surprisingly well. I mean, I wasn't really expecting it to work at all, but uh, when I got out and started plowing, I just couldn't stop. Like see, seeing just this big curl of snow come out on either side of the plow is super satisfying. And the plow does have its limitations as far as snow depth, I would say probably deeper than eight or so inches. And you're going to start kind of hitting a wall. The ideal use case is kind of catching the snow when it's in like the like sub two, three inch kind of depth, when you can hit it with speed, maintain your speed, just like send it flying off to the side. And then you can come back and make it wider and like hopefully keep riding as the snow is falling every few inches. That would be kind of like the ideal use. I went out the other day after we got a foot and a half. And I mean, it was just like, it was like hitting wet concrete. <laughs> Not a commercial solution, perhaps. Where do you see this being used? I mean, it seems like an idea that's going to spread. My plan is to make a follow-up video, just kind of going over like the simple construction of it. And the operation of it. I'm going to release that as a video on my uh, YouTube channel um, so that other people, if they want to, they can build their own. I've had a lot of people ask me about details on how I made it, how it's used, what the limitations are, these sorts of questions. So I'm going to make a follow-up video hopefully today or in the next couple of days. Uh, it's a pretty busy time of year right now, but um, my next plan is to make a video so other people can make their own. That's probably the number one question I've had is how have you made this and how can I build my own and how can I attach it to my bike? So I think that's my next step is just making it something that's easy to replicate because it was quite easy to build made from like essentially kind of scrap I had lying around. Doesn't need a lot of wood. If you have a heavy-ish kind of bike, I think you need a bit of weight in the bike to kind of hold your lot down. But if you already got like spike tires on your bike or e-bike, that would probably go a long way to pushing this thing along. Adding the ability to distribute salt or sand behind the bike would I think take it to the next level because when you clear the snow if you just leave it like that it's like it's almost like slippery it's almost more slippery than if there's just fresh snow because once you expose that bare concrete if you're not salting or sanding it then it can become slippery mm -hmm. right so I mean the cargo bike has this big heavy bin on the front I could pretty easily add like a giant Tupperware of salt you know jab a hole in the side you know as I yeah. go along I could just dump salt or like a little trailer I've got various bike trailers and stuff like that so um, that would probably be the next improvement as far as this design yeah I know I think I'm just going to work on making it something that people can replicate themselves because that would be the biggest difference if there was like a fleet of these things right like imagine if there were 10 or 20 people like me riding around that would make potentially a big difference right and if you can keep yeah. on clearing then you can really stay on top of it is there anything like this anywhere that you know of? when i was thinking about it a couple of years ago i obviously researched like i was googling like bicycle plow <laughs> there was a few designs i saw a guy on youtube he had this like large metal atv kind of plow blade and he has this like inverted bmx and he kind of welded this frame and he's it's like a slow speed sort of thing and he's doing his driveway worked really well and then i saw this kind of pull behind plow it looks like it was a team in calgary that built that like 
20 some odd years ago, 30 years ago in the 90s. That was like a toe behind sort of thing. That was obviously on a regular bicycle. I hadn't really seen an e-bike used to make a plow that I had really come across. So I that really seemed like a good use of an e-bike, right? I mean, you might as well put the power to use for something like plowing. So uh, I guess it is somewhat unique. Do you want to say a word about your electric bike company, Sustainawave? It's a company I started a couple of years ago. So I built the bike in the video eight years ago for my appliance repair service company. I welded it up. I bolted on the electronics. It like revolutionized my business, how I run my business. And it effectively changed my life, that electric cargo bike. It really opened my eyes to what bicycles can do, to what electric cargo bikes can do. And it inspired me to start my own company, which I finally did a couple of years ago, Sustainawave. We do a lot of conversions, converting bicycles to electric, specifically like cargo bikes is kind of what we're sort of focusing on. We also have a line of electric cargo bikes that we sell. We're also getting into some unique stuff like solar. We did a bunch of test rides last summer with a big solar panel, like 140 watt solar panel. We went on like a 260 kilometer four day tour through like the logging roads here on Vancouver Island. We didn't have to charge once. We managed wow. to ride three days through backcountry logging roads. By the second day, I managed to take everyone's gear onto my bike and I never got below 50%. So there's oh. lots of unique things that you can do with electric bikes these days. And we're sort of keen on doing unique stuff with electric cargo bikes in particular. Some folks have suggested like, oh, you should build these plows. You can make a lot of money. I'm, I'm not convinced it's a commercial solution. I would just be really happy to just show people how they can build their own. And if a bunch get made and people are out there plowing in their neighborhoods, that would just be amazing. So I'm totally happy to put that out there. One more time, your website? Sustainawave.ca. Thank you. And enjoy uh, all that snow. Cheers. Have uh, happy holidays. That was Philip Marciniak. Now Taylor Nichols with Livable Communities Initiative founder, Lindsay Sturman. I'm here with co-host Lindsay Sturman, who has some very good news to share. Lindsay is the co-founder of LCI, which is the Livable Community Initiative, which is basically a design for urban environment of a 15-minute city. Lindsay, I would say welcome to Bike Talk, but you're always on the Bike Talk, so I can't say that. But I wonder if you could tell us really quick what LCI is and then what happened on Wednesday, why that was such a big deal with the LA City Council. Yes, thank you. And it's great to be on Bike Talk as a guest. <laughs> so the Livable Communities Initiative is a program that somewhere between 20 and 50 people in LA have been putting together to address our housing crisis. And as we all know, housing and transportation are interconnected. You can't fix the housing without fixing the transportation because of one huge reason. The minute you add parking or underground parking or podium parking into a building, it's no longer affordable. The economics are destroyed. It's not profitable to build and it's not affordable to rent. So you really just end up with luxury or sprawl. So I came in as the bike person and we had architects and urbanists and a professor at UCLA and an amazing city planner at Mendoza. And it's a work in progress. And we welcome everyone sort of iterate what is a 15-minute city? What's that version in LA? What does that mean right off 15-minute city? A 15-minute city is something that was kind of invented in Paris. And there are great videos online about it. And it's a place where you can walk or bike to everything you need in 15 minutes. It goes back to Roman times. Their cities were 15 minutes across. It's meditative, and we like to walk in 15-minute increments. We're very willing to do it. We actually opt into it. So a 15-minute bike ride, we all love a bike ride. It's our happiest form of transportation. 
So the idea is, can we create neighborhoods where you can walk and bike safely and touch our high quality transit? Because the metro is world-class infrastructure. And let me tie it to one more thing is that we're in a housing crisis. We need to build half a million, 500,000 units. Where are you going to put them? And there's a huge debate going on in the city. And a few like really wonderful voices came in and said, what about our commercial corridors? Put our housing along our corridors, small apartments, which are affordable, literally by design. Single family homes are luxury housing. Apartment living is affordable if it's small and doesn't have expensive amenities. And the most expensive amenity is parking. Parking. Parking drives our housing crisis. And if you can take it out and create these walkable, bikeable communities, I have family members who can't drive. Gen Z doesn't want to own cars, right? Right, It's the Uber generation. They find that it's cheaper to just Uber. Great, right? Seniors lose their ability to drive. They outlive it by seven to 10 years, a decade of our lives we have to go to. Either you move to the villages or you're trapped in a suburban home. As well as people who just can't afford to drive. If you are a working household, 30% of your income you're spending on a car. And I think we don't recognize that cars are aspirational for many, many people. But there's another side to it. Many people don't want to own a car. It's too expensive. They want to live their values. It's sustainability. Or they like transit. A lot of people love transit. I love transit. Most people love a train ride. So it's not taking anything away from anyone. And we also really listen to people. We listen to people fight housing. And we said, what do you care about? And it's only three things. They don't want tall buildings. They don't want ugly buildings. Right. And they don't want traffic. And if you right. take those out of the equation, I think that of the thousands of people we've talked to, I think about three people don't support the idea. So tell me what happened on Wednesday with the LA City Council. Yeah, so we've been organizing around this idea of this Livable Communities Initiative, and we actually got in something called the housing element, which is LA's plan to build housing, our eight-year plan. It passed unanimously, so now it goes to the planning department, and they're going to draw up these technical rules. What is the density? Where does it go? What's the community involvement? Because this isn't about bullying anyone. This is about communities coming together and saying, this is where we want our housing, and this is what we want it to look like. We want it to be five stories. We don't want eight story, 10 story buildings, because we actually don't need tall buildings when you really look at the numbers and then the mobility. And that's, of course, you know, the bikes and everybody gets the walkability and everybody gets the transit. And I think only bike people fully get the power of bikes that many, many people want to live a bikeable life. I always think of bikes as a work multiplier. You can walk 15 minutes and cover maybe a half a mile, but in 15 minutes on a bicycle, you can get three or four or five miles or something like that. So that really expands that. Exactly. As well as you can carry stuff with you. Cargo bikes, adaptive bikes, trikes. Electric bikes. Electric bikes, electric cargo bikes with your kids. Three miles is a pretty big circle. Seven miles is an e-bike. That is a huge world. So if we build these around job centers, the dream is you're going to school, you're a grad student. Grad students, I was a grad student, I didn't have any money. I couldn't afford a car. What you want is like a cheap apartment in a walkable neighborhood. You can also, we realize you can keep your car at work. You have a parking space. That makes me think of the picture that you use on the LCI promotion. You have pictures on your website, livablecommunitiesinitiative.com of what Westwood Boulevard looks like now. It's one story, lots of vacant storefronts, absolutely barren of people. And then the picture next to it is what Westwood Boulevard could look like under an LCI redevelopment, which is four stories of housing and one story of retail. 
Yeah. So it's kind of how cities have been built for thousands of years. You have stores on the bottom, you have housing for workers and shopkeepers and just everyone above it. And so we're going back to that model and it creates a lot of vibrancy on the ground and everything you need, hopefully, if there's tons of shops. And we're also picking streets with small retail, not big box stores. So you're not rolling from a Staples to an Office Depot to a Best Buy. And I think there's been a lot of reluctance to really embrace bikeability. And what I'm hoping is that we'll start to recognize that bikes fill in the gap, as you were saying, it's a multiplier, because we're just too spread out. You really have to pick your density. Newark is 10 stories all over. So you have such density, you can really support a ton of shops. My sister lives there and there are three grocery stores within two blocks. Well, if we're three to five stories and it's more gentle density, we are a city that is spread out. But as you were saying, cargo bike, an e-bike, an e-trike, can close the gap between walking and transit and job centers. What if we create safe routes for children to ride their bikes? Now, everybody who lives on either side of Westwood Boulevard, their kids can safely ride to school. In the Netherlands, in the Dutch kids are the happiest kids on earth, and they all ride their bikes. They bike to school alone at age 10, which is like fourth grade. It's another way of life for artists, our workforce, where you can own your own home, you're building equity, and you don't need to own a car that puts $20,000 in the pocket of a family. This is a goal that we should have. And you live a healthier life, better air quality, and this freedom for your kids. And it's not just that you don't want to own a car because lots of families are forced to own two or three cars if their children and their spouses all work in different areas. So if a family could own one car rather than two or three would help. This seems like such a great idea. Who's against it? So who's against it? It really so far hasn't been anyone. And so there are existing plans to pedestrianize Westwood Village, pedestrianize Hollywood Boulevard, pedestrianize Main Street. Great. Let's use their energy and say, hey, why don't you just add housing? And you had also mentioned earlier about this allows the people who already own the property to build up on their own property rather than give it over to a mega developer to build a huge project. This allows them to control their own growth. Can you explain that? It's the ADU model. So the ADU Mm -hmm. model was you take people with a single family home and you, you fast track it and you streamline it. You make it incredibly easy to just build another unit on their own land. And so nobody's buying and selling land. You take that out of the equation. So let's make it incredibly easy, streamline it. And so it's 24 hour permits and there are no fees and you don't put these insane requirements. Right now, if you try to build what we're describing, your neighbors can run up a million dollars in legal fees, bankrupt you. It takes four to seven years. Up until a few months ago, you have to put an insane amount of parking, which destroyed the economics, as I said. And then you have to go to these community meetings where people scream at you. So it was so next to impossible. Every builder we talked to is like, I can't build in LA. I've given up. I build in Texas. Let's bring all those jobs back. People who are driving to Texas to work, bring everybody back to LA to build our housing. So- After Wednesday's vote in the city council, what's the next step for LCI? How do we make this happen? Well, we want everybody's energy. We are excited to work with community groups. Anybody who wants to get involved, just email us, go on our website and email us. And we're talking to community groups that already started forming. And again, it's a conversation. It's not trying to bulldoze anybody. Just try to get buy-in and just try to find one street. We kind of feel like one street did it. 
then people could go experience it. And you know what it's like to bike and you know the joy of it. Seek Livia, right? And yeah, I think yeah, once yeah. people experience it, maybe we'll start something. Well, this is great, Lindsay. Thank you very much. I actually read in today's newspaper that Los Angeles is the second deadliest city in the country for pedestrians. And I think a livable, walkable community is a great step toward making the roadway safer for everybody, for ourselves and for the people that choose to drive, but also for our seniors and our children and our able-bodied, challenged people to get around in a 15-minute city. Thanks a lot for all the work you did starting LCI. Thanks for coming on and being a guest. And I look forward to your next interview. Thank you, Taylor. That was Taylor Nichols with Livable Communities Initiative founder, Lindsay Sturman. And that was Bike Talk. That was great, Nick. I really enjoyed the interview with All Bodies on Bikes. You know, I just feel like the more inclusive we are in the alternate transportation world, the better off we all are, that you don't have to be wearing spandex and be Lance Armstrong to ride a bike to the grocery store. Yeah. And your interview with Lindsay was really good too. Thanks, Taylor. No, thank you. And we're back next week. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, catch yourself a bike.